I want to talk to you this morning about humility, about what humility is and what it means for your relationships and how it ought to dramatically alter how you use your time, your money, and your attention. I want to show you from the book of Philippians that true humility always conforms to the shape of Christ's redemption. But before we get started, I thought it might be worth our time to highlight some problematic misconceptions about humility in our society. I want to highlight a glaring misunderstanding of humility that seems to characterize our culture. Let me clarify. I am not saying that our culture is not prone to humility. That much is obvious. What I am saying is that, is that our culture doesn't even understand humility. Our culture has replaced a biblical definition of humility with something that is not humility. Our society parades around proud men and claims that they are humble because our society doesn't know what humility looks like. And this is not new. I'm going to read to you a few paragraphs from a lecture C.S. Lewis gave 73 years ago. If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if abstinence, our abstinence, and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think that this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblemished, um, I'm sorry, the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Two major issues... First, by some cunning deception, the average believer evaluates the state of his soul by looking inward. The chief virtue of the Christian has become mere selflessness. 
Mere self-denial, low self-esteem, self-deprecation, mere modesty, these masquerade as evidences of humility. While the average Christ follower once gauged his, the worth of his faith by looking outward, by accounting for the depth and legitimacy of his love towards his brothers in self-sacrificial service, he now asks whether he thinks quite too much of himself or whether he has denied himself this or that pleasure. The second issue? Such an illegitimate reduction of our faith operates as an end in itself. We no longer serve or sacrifice or die for the joy set before us. Self-denial is the end game. We blush at the brilliant promise of the wedding supper. We don't have an answer for the hope within us because the hope found within us has been reduced to stoicism. I want to set this self-exalting humility next to Christ-exalting humility. I want to pivot off of this broken idea of humility and look at Scripture to highlight the shape of Christ-exalting humility. I want to illuminate the superficiality of self-exalting humility by setting it next to the awe-inspiring brilliance of Christ-shaped humility. And I want you to see that every single step of self-denying, self-sacrificial, tedious, painful, humiliating work of cross-carrying that is Christ-shaped humility is driven and motivated by an unashamed craving for pleasure unspeakable. I want you to want to be humble because the end of humility is unceasing joy. I want you to salivate when you think about cross-carrying, self-denying, humiliating suffering because at the end of this suffering, we sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So open up the scriptures and let's look at Christ-shaped humility. Turn to Philippians 2. Hold up your Bible when you're there. It's so funny how many iPads go up. Thanks, Todd. Read with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to work through this passage in reverse order. Paul gives instructions here 
instructions to seek unity, to seek the good of others through self-abandoning sacrifice. But he does so against the backdrop of the model of Christ. I want to look at that model. And I want to chase the journey of the redemption of God's people through Christ's suffering and death because Paul says that this model is not only the why of our self-denying sacrifice, but the how of our self-denying service. We're going to take a few minutes to identify the shape of Christ's humility. And while I want you to pay attention to the actions of Christ, I also want you to notice that Paul, at every step of Christ's redemptive work, uses language that transfers to your situation. Paul is very intentional to describe the work of Christ using terms that you can identify with. Terms that you can adopt and apply to your own life. So I'm going to outline the work of Christ step by step. And I'm going to try and follow Paul by using terms that have gravity in your world. Okay, so step one. Christ set aside his right to glory. Though he was in the form of God, though he was equal to the Father and the Spirit, though he enjoyed glory and fellowship and honor unspeakable and eternal, though, his, though this glory was his right as God, Jesus set aside his rights. Jesus did not consider his rights a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? So, honestly, this is an odd string of words in the Greek. It's an idiom that doesn't quite translate well into English with a fairly troubling verb. And a lot of work has been done around the idea. But for our purposes, you need to know that this means something like Christ did not selfishly cling to equality with God. He chose not to take advantage of his privileges as God. Instead, step two, Christ took the form of a servant. Rather than enjoy his right to remain in glory with the Father and the Spirit, Christ left glory and took the form of a servant. Christ became man. But not just any man. Christ became the least of men. Christ became a servant. Christ condescended. I want you to think about what that word means because it has some negative connotations in our society. But the idea is central to the gospel. A better word is deigned. Thank you, Jonathan Watson, for teaching me what that word means. But nobody uses deigned anymore. Christ condescended to redeem. Christ left his station enjoying the rights of God and he lowered himself. You've got to push yourself to think outside of the box of the American dream. In this world, you don't change classes. You cannot, by your own efforts, lift yourself out of the station into which you were born. Think king and peasant. Think lord and serf. Christ, the king of kings, left his throne, stripped off his crown and royal garments, and put on the dirty rags of a servant. He condescended in the truest sense of the word. The world wasn't worthy of his presence much less his service. Step three. 
Christ was obedient, even though it meant suffering and death. I think we should be clear here. Jesus was not only compelled to the cross by a love for his people. Jesus was compelled to the cross in order to obey the Father. Obedience is central. Christ took up his cross because the Father asked him to take up his cross. Christ proclaimed the gospel. Christ healed. And Christ washed the feet of wicked men because the Father asked him to serve. Christ secured redemption because the Father asked him to redeem his people. Jesus knew that obedience would mean suffering. Jesus knew that obedience would mean death. Yet his love for the Father, his trust in the Father, his unity with the Father drove him to obey the Father. And step four, Christ set no limits on his own humiliation. Christ lowered himself, submitting to the most humiliating death in order to secure the redemption of his people. It wasn't enough for Paul to mention that Christ submitted to death. Yes, Christ was obedient even though it meant death. Yes, Christ died, but how did he die? This was important for Paul. How did Christ die? Even death on a cross. Christ's death was unthinkably humiliating. Christ died the death of the basest criminal. Christ was stripped and beaten and whipped before he was hung on a tree with nails in his flesh. Christ's death was awful. And Christ went to his death willingly. Jesus, the Son of God, who enjoyed inexpressible joy and glory in unimaginable unity and fellowship and love, set aside his rights, stooped down to become a servant, and he stooped down to suffer for his people, and he stooped down to die the death of a criminal and to secure his people's redemption. The condescension of Christ is staggering. There has never been, and there will never be, an equal to his humiliation. So this is the model. This is the shape of true humility. Paul looks to the life of Christ and he says, Christ is the why and the how of humility. Christ set aside his rights. Christ took the form of a servant. Christ was obedient even if it meant suffering. Christ set no limit to his humiliation. And Paul looks to the model of Christ's humility and says, this is what your life should look like. He says, your life should look like Christ's dying. How should you live? Follow Christ to the cross. Why should you follow Christ to the cross? Now that is a great question. Let's move back to the beginning of the passage and follow Paul's argument. Look back to verse 1. Everybody still have your Bible open? Look back to verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Before we get started, I want you to notice an expectation. 
Paul begins this passage conditionally. If you have been encouraged in Christ, if you have comfort from love, if you have fellowship with the Spirit of God, if you have received affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now I see two possible interpretations. Either Paul honestly expected that some believers did not encounter encouragement, comfort, love, fellowship, affection, and those believers were not required to pursue unity. Or Paul expects that every believer will have encountered encouragement, love, comfort, fellowship, and affection because that's how the gospel works and must therefore feel compelled to pursue unity. Unity is not optional for any believer, and Paul therefore expects every believer to encounter the radical grace of the gospel. If you are in Christ, you will have encouragement. If you are in Christ, you will have comfort from love. If you are in Christ, you will participate in the work of the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you will encounter affection and sympathy within the body. So if you have yet to experience encouragement as you gaze upon the empty tomb, wearing the righteousness of Christ, adopted son and co-heir with Jesus, or if you've never felt the comfort of Christ's burden-lifting love, or if you've never encountered the affection and sympathy of the body of Christ as we slice through sin which so easily entangles and walk side by side toward the promised land, You may not be in Christ. Stop for a moment. I want to clarify something. In one sense, that warning was for all of us. It is the responsibility of each of us to ask difficult questions of our faith. In another sense, though, that should sit on many of you differently than it does on others. Here's what I mean. Some of you have labored underneath the weight of depression for years. Some of you have encountered trial after trial and it seems like there is no end in sight. You are faithfully serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are faithfully pursuing Christ in prayer and in the word. And you are looking to Jesus for rescue from this desperate darkness. Listen to me. Your faith shines like a brilliant testimony to us, to Redeemer Church. Your faith is a stunning picture of hope. Some of you can barely remember the comfort of love because of the crushing burden of trial, and yet you pursue Christ and press forward step by step, trusting that Christ will deliver, that Christ has given you everything that you need. Your faith is a treasure. And your hope proclaims with breathtaking volume that Christ is enough. Do not be discouraged. Christ will rescue you from your sorrow. He will seat you in a place of honor at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You are in Christ. That desert season is nearly over. Look, I'm not saying that everything is roses and sunshine this side of Jesus. We are in the wilderness. And Jesus and James and Peter and Paul teach us to anticipate a life marked with seasons of suffering and trial and testing. But Christ, in His grace, 
interrupts these seasons with moments of refreshing. Moments which teach us to look longingly at the wedding feast of the Lamb. These moments, what Peter calls times of refreshing from the presence of our Lord, punctuate our hope in Christ's final deliverance. And Paul says that believers will experience these times of refreshing. We do not merely hope for a distant salvation. We, pre- we presently enjoy the fruit of salvation right now. And if we enjoy any degree of encouragement or any comfort from love or any fellowship with the Spirit or any affection and sympathy through the body of Christ, then we must chase, chase after our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must chase them. We must forget ourselves, our stuff, our ambitions, our plans, and chase after our brothers and sisters in Christ until we're united in love, until we're united in mind, until we're united in will. Have you enjoyed Christ? Make ready His bride. Have you loved Christ? Make ready His bride. Do you hope to sit at the wedding feast? Make ready the bride for the wedding. This is the why of humility. This is the why of self-denying, Christ-exalting humility. We set aside our rights because Christ gave everything on our behalf. We suffer for others because Christ suffered in our place. Why follow Christ to the cross? Because Christ secured the encouragement and love and comfort that we experience right now. We experience fellowship and participation with the Spirit because Christ secured our redemption and sent His Spirit as a seal, guaranteeing our inheritance. That's why we follow Christ. That's why we humble ourselves like Jesus. And immediately after answering the why, Paul casts a vision for the how always pointing back to the shape of Christ's redemption, always reminding us of the model of Christ's humility. Paul looks to the shape of Christ's redemption and he sets a mission for the church. Paul doesn't leave you hanging with abstract principles. It's not enough for Paul to say, be like Jesus. Paul doesn't hand you a WWJD bracelet and send you on your way. Thank you, 1998. No. No. Paul makes it real. Paul makes it very, very difficult for this passage to rest easy on your conscience. So let's look at Paul's program for cross-carrying, Christ-following humility. Step one. Remember the brilliance of your rescue. Look to Jesus, who bore your sins, your death, your execution so that you might stand before God justified, co-heir with Christ. Paul says, look, you have known encouragement, you have known comfort, you have known love and affection and sympathy, all because of the cross of Christ. His suffering, his humiliation, his execution was a prerequisite for your adoption. How can you carry your cross? Look to the cross. You will never stoop down on your hands and knees with bowl and towel before the filthy feet of sinners until you see the King of Kings on the floor with scuffed knees gently washing your own. 
if you have hope, if your life is beautiful, if you catch glimpses of glory, it is because Jesus suffered on your behalf. Jesus set aside his rights. He gave up glory so that you would have redemption. The longer you gaze at your redemption, the more fit you are to carry your cross. I want to repeat that. The longer you gaze at your redemption, the more fit you are to carry your cross. Step two, set aside your rights. Look to Jesus, who set aside his right to remain at the right hand of the Father, who set aside his right to enjoy Trinitarian glory, Trinitarian love, Trinitarian fellowship, who set aside his right to worship and adoration in order to secure the redemption of wicked men. Okay, guys, you likely have stuff, right? You likely have a job or are working towards employment. You likely have resources, however limited they might seem. And you likely believe that you have earned this stuff, this job, these resources. You're right. In a way, you may have earned your paycheck. You may have earned those hours at the end of every day. In a way, you're the steward of your possessions. And you are given the privilege to invest your time, your money, your attention in whatever way you see fit. That is the way the world works. But you have been rescued out of this world. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. If your stuff was ever your stuff, it is no longer your stuff. If your time was ever your time, it is no longer your time. To live is Christ. Have you asked yourself, what does that mean? To live is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ, who set aside his rights. Christ, who left unimaginably comfortable home. Who left unimaginably uplifting fellowship. Who left glory. It is Christ who lives in you. To carry the cross is to leave behind all of your stuff. To carry the cross is to leave behind comfort for suffering. That paycheck which you have earned, that evening with fast food and Netflix, which you have earned, that cell phone upgrade, that new car, that night out, which you have earned, that is no longer yours. You were bought with a price. You had a right to your comforts, your treats, your rest, your alone time. You had a right to these things until you were bought with a price. You had a right to these things until Christ looked you in the eye and said, If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. Step three. Count and consider. Look to Jesus who considered the redemption of wicked men rather than his own rights. Who looked to the interest of guerrilla rebels rather than the interests of their rightful Lord. Look to Jesus who counted insignificant men significant. I want you to notice a pattern, at least a pattern in our culture, surely a pattern in human history, likely a pattern in your own life. This pattern, I think, is most readily visible when you think about how you think. 
Let me repeat that. The pattern is most readily visible when you think about how you think. Think about how much thought and mental energy in any given day is devoted to you. Think think about how much time you think about you, about your plans, about your stuff, about your job, and about your problems. Think about your thoughts as if they were not an unlimited resource. Think about your mental energy in the same way you think about time. Because at the end of the day, we only have so much of it. And think about how much of your thought life revolves around your agenda, around your interests, around your desires, around you. I asked myself the same questions. And the amount of thought, the amount of mental energy that I devote to my stuff, to my agenda, to my plans, to my desires, is staggering. I think about me. My world revolves around me. And I suspect that you might be the same way. Look, the shape of Christ's humiliation is absolutely other-oriented. The shape of our redemption is a picture of self-forgetfulness. Christ set aside his rights. He took the form of a servant and he was devoted through and through without flinching, without self-interest, without vacations to your redemption. Christ spent himself on you. You cannot afford to do the same. You cannot afford to waste any more thought on yourself. He looked outside of himself and he devoted himself to the interests of another. It's time to shake off this self-intoxication. It's time to sober up from the drug of self-interest, self-concern, self-satisfaction. We are no longer permitted to devote the lion's share of our mental energy to considering our own agendas. We have been given stewardship over one another. As soon as you lift your eyes from your own circumstance, you will find that you are surrounded with men and women who carry heavy burdens, who labor isolated from fellowship, who are scared and lonely and hopeless. Adopt their interests. Adopt them. Set aside your own stuff and adopt their interests. Pretend for a moment that their agenda, their interests, their plan, I'm sorry, their pain, their problems are as significant as, if not more significant than your own. Christ took up the cross because the cross of Christ had everything to do with your deliverance, yours. Christ gave himself up in the interests of others. Go and do the same. You remember the good Samaritan? Don't you think that that guy had plans? Think about it. Don't you think that guy had plans? Don't you think that guy had business to attend to? Had meetings and meals on his schedule? Was, was looking forward to the glass of wine at the end of his road? Look, sometimes you have to forget yourself because there's a guy on the side of the road bleeding. 
sometimes you have to forget yourself because there's a family in need and you have been called to represent Christ. Sometimes when you have everything to do and you are so behind, a struggling struggling believer is going to approach you and ask you for time or for attention or for love or for fellowship. And in that moment, you have a choice to make. Will you devote your time, your mental energy, your resources to your own agenda, to your own plans, to your own interest? Or will you give yourself to the interests of another? Step four. Set no limits on the suffering, on your suffering in the interests of others. Set no limits on your suffering in the interests of others. Look to Jesus, who didn't just become a servant, who didn't just obey to the point of suffering, who didn't just die, but who submitted, willingly giving himself over to execution on a Roman cross. Christ set no limits to his suffering. There was no distance too far to secure the redemption of his people. The cross which Christ bore led him to prolonged excruciating pain, isolation, and death. This is the cross to which we've been called. When Christ explained that anyone interested in becoming a disciple must take up their cross and follow him, he was talking about this cross. And he was asking them to follow him to Golgotha. I want to make a distinction here that Brett has pointed out several times. Christ did not call us to be willing to die. Too many believers are willing to die for their brothers and sisters, but they are not dying. Too many believers have misunderstood the calling of Christ. We are not called to be willing to die for our friends. We are called to die for them. We are not called to be willing if the situation arises to make drastic sacrifices. We are called to make drastic sacrifices. Listen, Christ's work happens when people are dying. We pretend to ourselves that we'd be willing to make radical sacrifices if the situation arose, which called for radical sacrifices. But we are currently in that situation. So I want you to take some time this week. And I want you to look around. And I want you to devote time and energy to study the circumstances of your care group. And of your church members. And of your neighbors. And of your co-workers. Look, you're going to find people that are depressed. You're going to find a guy who has just hurt his back and cannot return to work. You're going to find families that can't pay their rent. People are missing in action and you're going to notice that they haven't been around here for a few weeks. You'll speak with a friend whose cousin is pregnant and considering abortion. Just so you know, this is is all real stuff. Everything I just listed is stuff that's come up in, what, the last month? You are called to die. You are called to do the dying every single day. Christ's work happens when people are dying. 
Christ's work happens when savings accounts are emptied. Christ's work happens when teachers are fired for proclaiming the gospel. Christ's work happens when every waking hour is devoted to seeing men and women turn to Christ for redemption. Die to your interests, your plans, your agenda. Die to your preferences. Set no limit on your sufferings. The joy set before you is worth losing sleep over. The joy set before you is worth losing your job or your friends or your own free time. And that joy has everything to do with the last step. Step five. Suffer in the interests of others for the joy set before you. Look to Jesus who unapologetically endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. We never suffer as an end in itself, ever. Our pain, the suffering of a Christ follower, our sacrifice, the offering of a Christ follower, our service, the love of a Christ follower, always looks to the reward that we've been promised. In a way, there is nothing as selfish as carrying your cross. There is no play, there is no gamble, there is no leap of faith so audacious as our own. When Christ carried his, Christ, his cross, he did it for the joy set before him. When Paul stood before Rome, he did it for the joy set before him. I want to, I want to take, a, take a look back for a moment at Philippians. I want to show you how unabashedly reward-oriented is the suffering of Christ. I want to show you how unabashedly reward-oriented is the suffering of the saints. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11, Therefore God has exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, go, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 3.18 For Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so that by, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that, in order that, I suffer like Christ suffered, in order that, I might gain, attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3.12 I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For the prize. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even to subject all things to Himself. Such is our hope. This is the reason we carry the cross. This is the reason we die. Because it's worth it. We have been adopted. We are co-heirs with Christ. The Father has already given us Christ. How shall He not give, graciously give us all things? 
Our bodies will be changed to be like his glorious body. Tears will be wiped from our eyes. Suffering will be vanquished. Death will die. We will join the chorus shouting, holy, holy, holy. We will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will walk the streets of gold. We will partake in the tree of life. We will stand before the glorious throne of God with confidence wearing the righteousness of Christ. This joy set before us is worth dying for. It is worth losing sleep. It is worth sacrificing security. It is worth the money. It is worth the time. So, I want to take a few more minutes and ask you some questions. I want, to th- I want you to think about these questions. I want you to stew on these questions. I do not want you to feel condemned by these questions. Part of the reason I know to ask some of these questions of myself is because I've seen among you, I've seen some among you carry your crosses brilliantly. I've seen you give of yourself inexplicably. I've seen you suffer. I've seen you spend time on others. But we all have room to grow into the image of Christ. So take these questions and let them roast in your oven for a week or so. I'm going to send each one of you these uh, questions on the city so that you can discuss them in care group or at the dinner table and evaluate the shape of Christ's humility and how that shape might fit into your own circumstances. All right, so here's the questions. First question, ask yourself, do I suffer? It's a simple question. Do I suffer? I'm not talking about getting caught up in an extra 20 minutes of traffic. I mean, real suffer. When you encounter difficulty, is it because of your own sin, because we live in a broken world, or because you're de- you've devoted yourself wholeheartedly to the growth and maturity of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you give your time, your money, your stuff to such a degree that it makes you uncomfortable? Second question. Ask yourself, have I set aside my rights? Is there anything in your life which you have earned, but which might either undermine the growth of a believer, perhaps by occupying your time, or might be better placed in the hands of a less fortunate believer? Third question. Do I condescend? Ask yourself, do you walk alongside every sort of believer, even those of radically different station, maturity, etc., so that the world asks, why? Why are you hanging out with that guy? Why are you getting coffee with that girl? That didn't didn't make any sense. When the gospel transforms the lives of people, it does not make sense to the world. So have you, have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever put yourself in a situation that does not make sense to anyone around you? Have you ever condescended? Fourth question comes with a preface. Remember that how you relate to people is a gauge of your humility 
And remember that how you use your resources is a gauge of the importance of your relationships. So here's the question. How do you spend your time? How do I spend my time? This was a painful question. Thinking about this question was painful. Do you spend time with your family? Do you spend time with your care group apart from care group time? Do you invite others to your home? Do you spend time asking questions about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you ever walked away from a situation thinking, I'll never get that time back? When you spend time with your family or your brothers and sisters in Christ or your children, are you distracted? Are you looking at your iPhone? When, you speak, when, you, when people are speaking with you, are you listening to their words? When people are speaking with you, are you thinking of the lists of things you've got to do or wondering how long this conversation is going to take? Man, I'm preaching to me. Next question. Ask yourself, how do I spend my mental energy? Think about your thinking. Do you consider, think about, and account for the struggles and strengths of your wife or husband for encouragement and rebuke? Do you consider, think about, and account for the struggles and strengths of your brother or sister in Christ for encouragement and rebuke? Do you consider the needs of your brothers and sisters in your care group? Do you pray? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you pray for your wife or husband? Is your prayer life self-centered? Man, mine is. Next question, how do I spend my money? Look at your checkbook. Or, I don't use checks. Look at the thing on the website that tells you what you bought. (laughs) What do you care about most? I bet you can discover the answer to that question by looking at your transactions. Do you give to your brothers and sisters in need? Do you give to the church? Do you spend all of your money on your interests? So we're going to pray, and I want you to roast on these questions. I want you to think about them. I want you to stew on them. I want you to talk about them in care group.